Hey everybody, this is um, Dr. Neil Paulvin, and we're ready to, to embark on another episode of the Life Optimized Podcast, where we help you optimize your love, health, fitness, and business. And we have a great guest today who um, I've spoken to in the past, but it's been a while. I'm going to introduce Dr. John Sodery, who has a bio as long, it could probably take a half hour to go through here. <laughs> um, some of you may know him as Dr. John from Clubhouse, who became famous on that app. I don't know if he's not even uses the app anymore, but uh, he was a clubhouse uh, phenom when, when it was big a couple of years ago, but he's also a, a huge amount of scientific knowledge and scientific uh, achievements. So Dr. Sodery, thanks for jumping on with us today. I'm going to let you introduce yourself and tell everybody about yourself. And then we're going to do some really deep dives and some scientific topics that becoming really popular and, and and showing some real life application. So thanks for coming on. Introduce yourself. Tell everybody who you are and what you've done and what you're doing sure. now. Sure. Uh, I'll try to go really quick. I don't really have my, my bio up in front of me, so I'm going to give you a real short version. Um, I'm Dr. John. I'm a PhD scientist. I'm not a medical doctor, and I, I don't provide any medical advice. Um, and I you know, wanted to say that up front. That said, um, I'm 63 years old. I have young kids. I am incredibly focused on maximizing my health span. And what I'm trying to do is show people that you can be 63, but you can perform like you're 35. If you do the right things for your mitochondrial health, for your cardiovascular health, for the different genes in your body, turning on things that are incredibly protective uh, turning on processes that drive repair. Um, I did my doctorate in chemistry at Duke. I finished up in 1985, which is probably before many of many people were born. But um, I went to work for Procter and Gamble. I led product development teams there. And the uh, last thing I worked on, the last product I worked on, did over a half a billion in the market. It was a it was a big success. Um, I left P&G, I've started multiple companies. Um, two of those I've grown uh, and then to the point where we sold them to larger companies. So the software that we developed um, uh, called Ingenuity is used by Procter & Gamble worldwide and many large companies to build all their formulations, we developed that. Um, but my focus, um, is on how do you maximize health span? How do you slow down damage? And how do you accelerate repair? And I attack the problem like I attack all problems, which is I try to understand it at a fundamental level, which in my world means at a molecular level. And once you understand it, then you can make much better decisions and uh, it makes life a lot easier. So, um, I left a lot of stuff out of the bio, thankfully for all of us. And I, let's, let's get into the important stuff. You know, how can Dr. Neil and I help you to add years or decades to your health span? How can we help you feel better, look better? You know, I'm 63. I'll be 64 next year. I don't want to be an old man. I want to be strong. I want to be lean. I want to be out backpacking. I want to be running on the beach. I'm not willing to just surrender to aging normally. And I think, you know, I've, I've spent enough time with Neil on Clubhouse where Neil knows his stuff. And he and I really resonated because, you know, I pride myself on reading the scientific literature. 
and, and reading 20, 20 articles and piecing it together. I don't rely on repeating something I've heard from someone else. I always wanna go back to primary sources. And if I don't have a molecular understanding, I'm not comfortable. So that was a long sentence, Neil. I'm gonna bring it back to you and we get yeah. rolling there. For anybody who doesn't believe that John's into this, I don't know if his clubhouse picture's on the website now, but John <laughs> does what he, he speaks about. I mean, he looks like he's 30 years old in his pictures and he, and he, he practices what he preaches. So what's great, what you mentioned, I mean, in terms of now, um, it used to be called, I mean, the term, people used to throw terms around like biohacking and, and kind of longevity. And now what we're finding is, is, as what you mentioned, the data is now catching up in terms of we can do things in actuality, in real life, to maximize our health plan, to be healthier. And you mentioned a couple of times already, and you right now you have to start with the mitochondria. Um, I mean, and that leads in terms of doing things to optimize your mitochondria. And we'll kind of go through that things like red light and certain supplements. Sure. It goes to how the, the, the cell itself in terms of things like autophagy and mitophagy, which is how the mitochondria breaks down is important. So we're going to go through the mitochondria, how that's kind of becoming almost the, the core of any health band conversation. I mean, you want to talk about anything from NED or NERF2 or any half the supplements out there now or vitamins are targeting the mitochondria. Um, and then there's also that lifestyle component. You can take every, it's the opposite where you can take, and I know you believe in that too in terms of the way you sure. practice life, where you, if you don't have that foundation, you can take all the supplements that are out there that people are talking about all over the place and it's only going to go so far. So um, what I want, so let's get back to in terms of what the mitochondria, the importance of making sure that your mitochondria is healthy. So um, in terms of what you're looking at now, what do you find most important for yourself? And I know you have clients now or patients um, in terms of the starting point and in terms of approaching and optimizing the mitochondrial health. Sure. Um, I'll take 60 seconds and just talk about mitochondria and then we'll get into that a little bit, Neil. Um, your mitochondria are the battery chargers in your cells. And the batteries are the ATP, the adenosine triphosphate. And the job of the mitochondria, your food has the electrons. You breathe in, you eat food, you breathe in oxygen. Oxygen wants the electrons. The electrons flow from the food to the oxygen. And when they do that, they pump protons, uh, it's, think of it like a hydroelectric dam. They pump protons up behind the dam. And then those protons flow through a turbine and it's called ATP synthase. And it spins at 9,000 RPM. So it's like a Ferrari 458. It spins at 9,000 RPM. And every time it spins, it charges up three batteries and it changes them from ADP to ATP. So that was for the people that are more you know, uh, nerdier that want to know the details. That's how it's all supposed to work. If, however, those electrons don't flow all the way through the electron transport chain, if they leak out part of the way there, like a furnace, those are sparks. And those sparks can cause incredible damage to your mitochondria. And your mitochondria have their own hard drive. They have their own DNA. The mitochondrial DNA is circular, whereas your DNA is a, is a double helix. And interestingly, we're all descendants from apparently from one woman in Africa millions of years ago. So we're all related because we all have the same mitochondrial DNA. You can track that if you want to look that up. So 
when you look at a young kid, when I look at my young son, he can fly. He never gets tired. He can race around. If I say, go get something upstairs, he'll race up and get it, come back. If I say, oh, get me this, he'll race up and get it again. The biggest difference between someone that's 10 years old and someone that's 60 years old is that their mitochondrial function, their battery chargers don't work as well. That's the big thing. And so I try to understand what damages mitochondria, number one, because I don't want to do that. And number two, what can I do to get rid of the damaged mitochondria and um, create new ones from the ones that are undamaged? So to me, if you're in your 30s, because no one cares about their health in their 20s, if you're in your 30s and more likely in your early 40s, you want to protect your mitochondria because when they start to fail, you're going to get chronic disease. You're going to have no energy. Your skin's going to look worse. Everything in your body is going to work more poorly because everything runs on ATP. You can't think a thought. You can't move your finger. You, you, know, you can't have your heartbeat. Nothing works without ATP. And uh, you know, that's why cyanide is a toxin because cyanide shuts down ATP. ATP production in your mitochondria and in 15 seconds, you're dead. And it, you know, so, um, so my number one thing I would say to people up front this is a simple thing and you've heard it before, but maybe didn't understand why you don't want to eat three hours before you go to bed because you're going to eat all that food. The body can store the fat, but the carbohydrate, it can store a little bit as glycogen but the carbohydrate is going to be there and it's going to feed into that electron transport chain. Those electrons are going to feed in. When you go to bed and you stop, there's very low energy demands, not zero, but much lower. If those electron transport chains back up, some of those electrons are going to leak out as sparks and they're going to create oxygen free radicals. And those are going to ravage your battery chargers, your mitochondria. So I know a lot of years people told me, don't eat before you go to bed, but I'd have a slice of pizza and go to bed, whatever. When I figured that out, I know 10 or 12 years ago, I was like, oh my God, I really need to start doing that. And that's something that I've done for the last 10 or 12 years. And it's made a huge difference. So you, you don't want to damage your mitochondria because when those chains back up, like an electrical wire, if you've charged up all your ADP, then there's no place for those electrons to go except to leak out of the chain and to create these oxygen-free radicals. So you don't want to do that. So, But what about the mitochondria? What about the battery chargers you have that are already defective? What can we do to get rid of those? And that's a kind of a cool thing. It's really a two-part process. First thing you need to do is you need to push your mitochondria hard where they all have to run full blast. How can you do that? You jump into an ice bath and your body goes, oh my God, we're freezing to death. And all your mitochondria run all out. Or you do some high intensity training and you really push it for a 60 second interval. Um, or maybe you sit in the sauna and you're pushing your mitochondria because now your body has to deal with that thermal stress. But when you do that and they all run full blast, the body looks around at those trillions and trillions of furnaces. And it spots the ones that are leaking free radicals. It sees the ones that are leaking sparks. 
and it tags those. So it puts a little post-it note on them and tags them and says, the next time we shut down the factory, we're going to recycle all of these defective mitochondria. And that's, so that's step two is when you do intermittent fasting or when you take resveratrol or when you take spermidine or you consume foods that have spermidine, you're going to help the body trigger autophagy, the recycling process. I just leave it at that. We'll, we'll get into it more later. But the body is smart and it will look around and it will only recycle the mitochondria that are defective. And that's called mitophagy, as Neil alluded to earlier. And you want to get rid of them. Why? Number one, they're not working well. So that's a big problem. But number two, mitochondria are created through division. It's like having a little bacterial cell in your cell, and they actually divide. And so if you have defective mitochondrial DNA, and you let it divide, then one becomes two, which becomes four. And, and you know how geometric progressions work. So you have to get rid of them, you know, multiple times a week because you don't want them to build up. You want all your mitochondria to be young and pristine with perfect hard drives. You don't want those ones with defective hard drives to reproduce. So I want to turn it back to you, Neil, if you want to ask any, any drill down questions. but um, that's one of the reasons why autophagy and mitophagy are so incredibly valuable is because you have a chance to get rid of them. But if you never push your mitochondria, then they never get tagged. And therefore you're not going to get rid of, you know, all those defective, um, you know, all those defective mitochondria. No, so I mean, yeah, I'm going to hand it back to you. Yeah, no, we know. Yeah. Autophagy is, I'm at both the terms of, if you don't remove those those dysfunctional cells or dysfunctional mitochondria, it's, it leads, it's not only going to make you not work as well and lead to, like you mentioned, a reactive oxygen, react, reactive species, you're going to lead potentially to Alzheimer's and dementia and does even like not a diabetes and down the line, down the line. So you brought up, and we're going to go into probably deep, a little deeper dive in a little bit. When you say intermittent fasting, that has become yeah. kind of a big generalized term. I mean, that could mean one thing to you. And then somebody said, well, I, I, I didn't eat breakfast this morning. I, I intermittent fasted, which is not true. Um, so when you're communicating that to somebody, um, what, from what I, I know what I've read, I know it's, it's usually 18, 24 hours in theories when autophagy is going to happen with fasting. But what, from what are you looking for in terms of when you're fasting to initiate autophagy? Yeah, um, there's a lot of, one of my favorite research groups in terms of autophagy is Dr. Guido Cromer, who's in Paris, and they've done some spectacular work, and he's an incredibly articulate researcher. If you get a chance, watch some of his stuff on YouTube. Um, you know, great guy and, a, and a, an amazing researcher. Um, I guess when I look at, uh, Neil, tell me, go back, I, I go back to the question again, because I, no. I, I was... What are you looking for? If you're advising yourself, looking for yourself or somebody else, what hour, what time? Oh, the number of hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, yeah, yeah. So um, I almost every day have a 16 hour fast. Some days I have a 20 hour fast. Um, I'm in a family. I eat with my family. I have kids. It's not always easy, but it's really easy for me to avoid breakfast. So Here's the key thing in my mind, and some people will argue, and that is 
I wake up, I, I try to finish my dinner by 7 p.m. Um, and earlier is better. Um, at 7 a.m., 12 hours later, um, the body has used up all the glycogen. So what's going to trigger autophagy is when there's no fuel, when there's no glucose, and when there's no amino acids present. And that's going to bring down mTOR, and you're going to likely turn on autophagy. It's more complicated than that. I hear people talk about autophagy like it's a switch that's either on or off. And I don't see it that way. I believe that you always have a baseline level of autophagy running. However, when you bring down mTOR, you turn it up. So I would say that um, uh, at 12 hours, maybe you're starting to turn the knob just a little bit. And then when you get to 16 hours, you've turned it up a little bit more. Now it may take 24 or 48 hours to get it so it's running on maximal effect because the body's not only doing the recycling to get rid of the misfolded proteins in your brain and the defective mitochondria, it's doing it because the cells need energy. And when they break down these macromolecules, they can take the components, release them to the cell and use them as fuel. So um, part of the reason why your body does autophagy is because it says I'm starving and I need fuel. And so I'm gonna use the cellular components that are not critical right now. It would be like if your power went off in your house and your heat went off and you look around your house and say, I'm gonna light the fireplace. I need some alternate fuel. And you see, I have piles of newspapers and piles of magazines and piles of junk that I need to get rid of. The body's gonna recycle those. And a lot of that's gonna get burned. Some of it's gonna be recycled to build things, but a lot of it's gonna get burned. And so I look at autophagy as a knob that after 12 hours, it's probably starting to bump up a little bit. At 16 hours, it's coming up some more but it may take 24, 36, 48 hours or more to really get to the maximum level. We don't have great biomarkers for autophagy right now, but Dr. Cromer's group has done some beautiful work looking at how LC3 goes from being diffuse to being um, in little dots across the cell. And they've actually done work with a uh, using fluorescent labels, and they can actually quantify that. So I would think of it as a knob and not a switch, and that at 12 hours, you're just starting to ramp up. And you know to get to the maximum, you're probably looking at a two-day fast. But in between those two, you're going to get more autophagy by not eating, by letting it run. Um, um, let me turn it back to you, Neil, and see if you have any, you know, follow-ups and like that. Yeah, I, I like that philosophy and that explanation that it's not like zero or 60. There's gradations in there in terms of what you're getting. But yes, there's a mat, like you, you really want to get to that to get the max on top of it. It's going to be about, again, two days or so. Um, so we're going to, again, we want to make sure your mitochondria is opti working optimally. And then there's things That's that we good. can definitely do. You mentioned reactive oxygen species, which you need to make things run to a certain extent in your mitochondria and then yeah. they overwhelm. So we wanna find things out that are, you find and use things that are gonna extinguish that spark when it, the spark becomes too hot for lack of a real to, to this analogy here. So um, I know you're 
into that, you have several recommendations. So when we're looking into trying to contain those uh, re those reactive species, what are you advising people to do? What do you do for yourself? Sure, sure. Um, and you're right. If you quench all the free radicals, if you have fire extinguishers everywhere and you quench all the free radicals, the body is never going to see the sparks because you put them all out. And therefore, um, for instance, when I work out hard, Neil, I don't take any antioxidants that day. Um, and generally, I try to not take them the day before because you won't get the exercise, the full exercise benefits because the reactive oxygen species that are created are part of the response that triggers the repair, that triggers you building more muscle, that triggers you getting stronger to make more mitochondria. I don't want to crush the signal. Um, now, that being said, I don't want the fire to burn out of control. So um, free radicals are interesting. It just means you have a molecule that has an unpaired electron. And um, I, I like to, like, I think of the hydroxyl radical mm -hmm. as the Mr. T of free radicals, which, of course, you have to be old enough to have seen Rocky III. But um, that hydroxyl radical when it's created, is so reactive. It's probably one of the most reactive species in the universe. It will, when it hits your DNA, it will ravage it. It will rip an electron off of it. You may get a strand break or a double strand break. When it hits your lipid membranes, it will create a free radical chain. And it doesn't just kill one thing. When you oxidize one lipid in the cell membrane, it's like lighting one tree on fire that tree lights the next tree on fire. It rips an electron off the next thing, which continues through. And you may kill a hundred lipids by, with, that, with that electron um, where it's oxidizing the next thing to get an electron. And then that continues. That's called free radical propagation. And then finally in the cell membrane, you, maybe you have some alpha or gamma tocopherol and it hands an electron over to that last molecule and it quenches it. So antioxidants are just molecules that can give up an electron without themselves becoming a free radical. So whether we're talking about vitamin C or vitamin E or the different polyphenols, um, I think, and I don't want, I don't want to, I want to make sure we touch on this. There's a ton of things that people call antioxidants that are antioxidants. They can do that. But I think the reason why they're healthy is not because they can quench free radicals. It's because they have epigenetic effects. They turn on incredibly beneficial genes in your body. So I think their epigenetic effects are much more important than their ability to quench free radicals. So, um, so many things that are healthy, people are like, oh my God, it's an antioxidant. Yes, that's true but I don't think that's the key mode of action for some of the compounds that are in blueberries or some of the compounds that are in coffee or you know, on and on, or some of the compounds in broccoli and so on. So I wanna get that one out up front. But when an antioxidant attacks a free radical, it's like a Patriot missile. One free radical, one antioxidant, it's destroyed and vitamin C is consumed or alpha tocopherol is consumed in the process and would have to be regenerated. That's fine and that works. 
but I want to turn on my, I call my laser-based air defense system, which is I want to turn on a system that can kill off five or 10 billion free radicals every single second and does not get worn out. So I want to turn on superoxide dismutase. I want to turn on the genes that make catalase. I want to turn on all these antioxidant enzymes. And to me, and I'm sure to you as well, the best way to do that is to activate this NRF2 pathway. And for anyone that's listening, if you're not familiar with NRF2, Nuclear Regulatory Factor 2, Google it, watch some things on this because this is critical. And it's the reason why broccoli sprouts are so healthy. Because when you chew up broccoli sprouts, you produce something called sulforaphane. And sulforaphane is a beautiful activator of NRF2. Um, curcumin also activates NRF2. Um, resveratrol, the EGCG in green tea, in, sorry, in green tea. Um, Fisetin, uh, Moringa, all these things can really turn up NRF2. And if you're going to do that, the one hack is you probably only have to do it every two days because when you create the air defense system, it stays around for a couple of days, maybe two to three days. So if you are taking a supplement to activate NRF2, you might be able to do it every other day, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, instead of doing it every day. Um, so just a, another thing I wanted to put out there. So if you look into NRF2, I think your mind will be blown because um, when you don't run it, you're, you're creating incredible damage across your entire body and you're increasing your risk of you know, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, cardiovascular disease, mitochondrial dysfunction, on and on and on, because these are the machines. Picture um, catalase as a machine that can destroy billions of hydrogen peroxide per second. And you're like, hydrogen peroxide, that doesn't sound so bad, John. Well, if hydrogen peroxide's around and you have any free iron, that's how you make hydroxyl radicals. It's called the Fenton reaction. And hydroxyl radicals ravage your body. So I do things to make sure that I don't have free iron around. Um, I keep my blood ferritin levels at the bottom of the range. And I've done that for the last 30 years. I've given nine and a quarter gallons of blood to the Red Cross. I think I'm their number one guy in, <laughs> in Charleston. They call me every 56 days. Um, but you need to turn on NRF2 and you need to help your body create these antioxidant enzymes that are incredibly valuable. And here's the bonus points. They also turn on what are called phase two detoxification enzymes. And again, I know that's gibberish to everybody, but not as much when anymore. You're, people know people are. I have patients come to me and telling me this stuff. They like ask yeah. about these things now. It's great, oh. but yeah, could explain it though. So, so let's just say you fly and you're you're visiting China and you go to one of the manufacturing centers and you think to yourself, "Wow, this air is just not good." And it could be any place that has you know heavy manufacturing. Um, and in the air, there's some benzene. Benzene is a top 100 carcinogen. 
there are other carcinogens. Your body has a system to get rid of those, this phase two detox system. Beautifully, things like sulforaphane and other things that activate NRF2, they also turn on those phase two detoxification enzymes. So there was a study done a few years back in China where they followed, I don't remember, I don't have the details in front of me, but hundreds of people. And one group, they gave them a broccoli drink every morning to drink, to give them sulforaphane to turn on NRF2. And the other group didn't get it. And then they measured the amount of benzene in their blood. And as the levels of pollution went up and down, the benzene went up and down. But the group that didn't get it was up here and was always much higher. The group that did get it had 50 or 60% less benzene in their blood. So if you have a carcinogen, you want to get rid of it before it initiates cancer. So turning on those phase two detoxification enzymes may protect you from getting cancer. You can't avoid all carcinogens. What you can do is strengthen your body so that it can handle them. And that's what turning on NRF2 does. So Neil, I'm gonna bring it back to you again then. There is a masterclass in terms of um, antioxidants and reactive oxygen species. So let's, I wanna highlight a couple of things that we mentioned there. Number one is, again, for some reason now in our supplement culture, everybody's like, I have to have antioxidants. I need my glutathione. I need this, I need that. It, it, we know that it, if taking prolonged and daily antioxidants does decrease muscle building and athletic performance. That's been proven time after time after time. So what Dr. John is saying is you need your antioxidants, but it's not something that needs to technically, in terms of supplements at least, be part of your daily routine. You can add it in multiple times a week, but not daily. If you're getting it from food, which I'm going to go back to in a second, that's a little bit of a different ballgame a little bit. You want to get those nutrients in your food, but you don't need to add it with supplements. Um, the second thing I want to highlight, yes, Nerf 2, um, in terms of general health has become one of the best, probably the best antioxidant in terms of what it does. Um, you can get it from broccoli. You can get it from supplements. Um, it's something you definitely should be aware of and ask and looking into making sure that you're doing something in terms of supplementation to activate your nerve two pathway. And what we're going to go through the, as we go through the rest of the podcast here, what you want to try to pick up is there's different things that you can do from different buckets. You want to have some lifestyle changes, be it sauna or cold immersion. You want to do something for your antioxidants. It doesn't have to be all seven things that we mentioned. We're going to yeah. talk about potentially working, doing things like red light to boost your cytochrome and doing other things. Uh, we're going to talk about insulin. If you kind of do one from column A, a couple from column B, it's not, I just need a bunch of column things from column B and I'm going to be perfect. More is not better in what we're talking about is having a, a, a kind of a comprehensive approach. Um, but I mean, again, everything, else, I totally agree with everything you're saying. And again, nerve to general health. And now, unfortunately, in terms of illness is, is coming out. And again, what I love about, you've been talking about this for years now, is we're seeing the paradigm kind of switch a little bit. It used to be, okay, we're only going to treat people when they're sick and then work backwards and try to treat them. Now we're trying to not have, like you mentioned, things you can do for cancer and other illnesses, diabetes, and so on. If you can maintain your health span, we hopefully don't get to that later stage. So I know it's something that you've talked about before, and I want you brought up a couple of times already. A lot of these things you can get from food. Certain ones you can get very easily from food. 
Um, sulforaphane can be one of them. And you also brought up spermidine in terms of autophagy. And that one, you better be eating a lot of nano and a lot of other things to get some of the levels that the studies are showing. So, um, so we're going to, so in terms of, are you more, do you advise for yourself and other people in terms of get as much as you can from food first and then supplement what you're not getting? I mean, that, is that, that tends to be my approach as well, but it's, if you can, if we can make it work. Well, here's the thing, Neil, if you look at the scientists from 1900 today, you know, we go 120 plus years in the future. Um, I don't know how I can say this politely. We think they were fools because they didn't understand anything. And if you look at this, you know, the, the scientists in the 1900s thought they had it all figured out, but they looked at the scientists from 100 years before them and said they knew nothing. And that's always the case. And I know, it, you know, it's 2022 right now. I know in 15 years, they're going to look back and say, oh my God, those people, they didn't know anything, meaning it can, we don't understand everything. The magic of getting it from food is that there oftentimes are other things that are critical, other cofactors, um, other bioflavonoids, other things that are critical to its benefit that you would get in the orange peel. But if you just take pure ascorbic acid, vitamin C, you wouldn't get. So getting nutrients from food, I think is critical. Now, that being said, um, I probably don't eat broccoli um, uh, twice a week. I want my wife to make it, but she's just not into it. And the kids are not into it. So it's not high on the thing. So I, I'll spin out to the store and I'll buy a bunch of broccoli and then I'll whip it up and, you know, put some, crush some fresh garlic and some olive oil and make it taste good or whatever. Um, I have a hack for you on broccoli because most people, when they eat broccoli, they get very little sulforaphane. And the reason is that broccoli itself doesn't have sulforaphane. It has a precursor called glucoraphanin in one compartment. And then in a separate compartment, it has an enzyme called myrosinase. And it's only when you chew it up and those two come together that you produce the sulforaphane. So you're thinking, okay, that's fine. I chew my broccoli. But when you cook the broccoli, when you, when you steam it for seven minutes, you kill the enzyme, you kill the myrosinase. So you're going to get 95% less sulforaphane if you cook it. Now, I don't like the taste of raw broccoli, partly because you're tasting the sulforaphane. Um, but if you cook the broccoli, steam it, and then after you steam it, you go on Amazon and you buy, and I don't have any Amazon connection, but you buy for six bucks a little bag of mustard seeds, whole mustard seeds. So I take a teaspoon and I'll take a half a teaspoon of mustard seeds and either sprinkle it on my broccoli or put it in my mouth and crunch it up. And you know the seeds are good because if you crunch them up, it's not going to be hot initially, but then over time, it's going to start getting hot in your mouth because the myrosinase is activating compounds that are giving you that effect. If you add back that enzyme from the mustard seeds to the cooked broccoli, you can increase by 10 or 20 fold the amount of sulforaphane that you get. 
Now, the other approach, if people that are hardcore, but I think only one person of 500 will do this, is you grow or you buy broccoli sprouts and you eat those and you do those raw. So I have friends of mine, I have them putting broccoli sprouts in their smoothies to cover up the taste because most people don't love that taste. That works as well. Um, the other thing is if you put, if you want to make broccoli soup, put it in your Vitamix with a couple ice cubes and blend it and then let it sit for a couple hours and then make the soup. Because once the glucoraphanin has been converted to sulforaphane, it doesn't matter if you heat it up now. So I, for the kids, I make, oh, it's daddy's super, super power green soup. <laughs> and it's really a broccoli soup with a bunch of other things in it so they don't taste the broccoli. But I, I'll always let it sit for a couple hours to massively increase the amount of sulforaphane that you get. Now, that being said, I take probably three days a week, a supplement that has both the glucoraphanin and the, um, uh, and the myrosinase in it. And then it produces that, you know, in my body, it produces a sulforaphane because I'm trying to push the envelope. I don't want to, I want to build a race car. So I want to really push it. So I do that on top of it. Um, but there are other things in the broccoli that are also very helpful in terms of cancer prevention and other health benefits, many of which we haven't learned yet. So I would definitely say the food is first, but then I add in to bump it up with supplements maybe every other day because I really want to push the envelope a little bit. So I'm going to, I'm going to bring it back to you yeah, again. That's exactly. I mean, food is first because it's going to be the most pure form. There's always you're going to get the best effects with it. And again, if, if it's good quality supplement, I mean, if it's good quality food, organic, and then you supplement as you need to is, is the way that I believe in as well. And then we've mentioned spermidine kind of all over. Um, let's, I want to do a dive because I get so many questions about it now. Um, in terms of, you mentioned, I mean, the main effect or the main thing it's known for is that it does do, induce autophagy, which we talked about previously, but has a lot of other benefits. I know you're a fan of both getting it from, in terms of getting from food and potentially in supplementation. So explain to people why they should be loving some spermidine as well with their broccoli. So have some natto and some broccoli and they're good to go. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, 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 that's a great point. You know, and, um, that's one of the things that I teach people is. I have my um, 15 minute longevity lunch to give people high levels of spermidine and to give people another molecule that we'll get into a little bit later. Um, so you wanna turn on autophagy and there are some things that you can do to do that. Not just fasting. Fasting is one of the knobs that you can turn to turn up autophagy. Exercise also turns up autophagy. And I think a lot of the benefits that you get from exercise come from autophagy. And I believe there are studies that show if you block autophagy after exercise, you don't get nearly the benefits. You lose the majority or nearly all of the exercise benefits if you block autophagy. So intermittent fasting or fasting and exercise are huge. Resveratrol also turns up autophagy. So people talked about a resveratrol because of what it does to the sirtuins. Okay, that, that's a good point, but it's also impacting autophagy. 
And then spermidine is a key molecule. Here's what grabbed me on spermidine. I, studies that were done on centenarians and they looked at normal individuals and then they looked at centenarians. And normal individuals when they're young had very high levels of spermidine. You make it in your cells and you consume it in food and you make some in your gut. So you have multiple sources of it. The interesting thing is when they were young, everyone has high levels. But when you get to 40, the spermidine levels start dropping in most people, but they don't drop in centenarians. And then when you get to 80 or 90 or 95, they've dropped massively in most people, but not in centenarians. And it wasn't just the, the spermidine levels, it was the heart disease. The I mean, there were all these other effects that were that went along with that. So I thought, this is incredible. I did a whole, you know, hour talk on that. I showed the data. It just blew my mind. So I definitely want to be in the group that has more spermidine. There is work out now because a lot of people are dealing with residual problems from their COVID infections or maybe from their vaccinations. Who knows? Um, it turns out that the SARS-CoV-2 virus has the ability to turn down spermidine production in the cell. So maybe it becomes even more critical for those folks to restore that spermidine by choosing the right foods and like that. Um, when I look at the spermidine supplements, and I'm not saying anything bad about any of the supplements, they're good, but I, am, um, I go back to my Procter & Gamble days and I'm always saying, how much do I get and how much does it cost? So, you know, it's kind of the bang for the buck kind of deal. And, um, you know, a lot of spermidine supplements might give you one milligram. But if I can, I can easily eat a quarter pound of peas, 110 grams of peas. And if I can get six or seven milligrams of spermidine just by getting frozen peas and steaming them up and throwing them in as a side dish, that to me is more attractive of where I can get it from, you know, mushrooms. I can get it from wheat germ. I can get it from natto. Um, you know, there's some great sources out there. The critical thing is not necessarily to pick the one that has the most, but pick the one that will give you a decent amount in something that you can do for the rest of your life. So my 15-minute longevity lunch is pea soup. I do pea soup, but then I saute up some mushrooms because I don't, you know, I want other things that are in the mushrooms beyond the spermidine to, uh, you know, improve my situation on that front as well. So the, the molecule I'm, I'm alluding to is called ergothionine, and it's a fascinating molecule, and you're going to hear a lot more about it. I remember I mentioned it on Clubhouse, uh, you know, a year, year and a half ago, everyone was like, huh, what, what's that, John? And, it's, it's, and now it's, it, there's actually people selling supplements now that have ergothionine. When I talked about it, it costs $90 a month to supplement and get five milligrams of ergothionine a day. So I didn't supplement. Now there are supplements that cost, I don't know, $15 a month where you can get five milligrams a day. So now I get it from the mushrooms, but I also get it from the supplement because I want more ergothionine and, um, I have a medical hypothesis about how 
mushrooms may lower the risk of dementia and Alzheimer's. And it comes back to ergothionine and what's happening at a, on a molecular basis. I don't, you know, you and I can talk no, about we, it we, after. We, you know, no, we can go. Yeah, we're, I was going to lead right into ergothionine anyway. So great. Um, we, well, definitely want to get into that in a second. I mean, so just to kind of finish up spermidine is the main things that we look at. You can definitely get it from food. There's now supplements that have learned that you can't, what the studies are showing it's anywhere between three to 10 milligrams of spermidine are the ones that really bring on the benefits of it. So the supplement companies have upped the dose. It is pretty expensive. So if you can't, if you have the, if you have the time to get it from peas or beans or natto, that is the easiest way to do it. Um, again, to, to all these supplements can get very expensive very quickly at this point, especially if you're getting the high quality things. Um, mm -hmm. it, spermidine has been shown to, it can help heal the gut lining. We know that it may help in terms of crossing the blood-brain barrier and helping anti-inflammatory in terms of the brain. It may have some Alzheimer's preventative effects. So spermidine has, it's anti-inflammatory. I use it in a lot of my joint, like my arthritis patients. Um, so it has a lot of benefits. Get it from food if possible. If you are going to supplement, you usually want to get it at a higher dose. If you're going to do the one milligram, yeah. it's not really as beneficial for what you pay for it. Like Dr. John says, um, one of the points about spermidine, we'll hop back onto the mushrooms, are um, they are they have gluten. If you are gluten, if you have celiac disease or really sensitive to gluten, you want to get a gluten free or get it from a gluten free source, no matter where you're getting you're, it from. You're saying of the instead of like getting it from a wheat germ capsule, yeah, is that what exactly, you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah, there's good, a gluten free good. supplement. You can get it from yeah. beans and nuts or whatever. It doesn't uh, set you off either. So I mean, mushrooms. I mean, I, again, I mean, I think everybody should be eating mushrooms. I mean, there's so yes. many everything from. Of all the things that we know there in, in terms of the mushrooms now, in terms of the benefits between immune and anti-inflammatory and mood and all and so on and so forth. But and, and one last one last thing on spermidine. There are some there's some good science around the fact that spermidine seems to reduce colon cancer. And given that maybe 7% of all cancer deaths are colon cancer, and it's a pretty brutal disease, uh, anything you can do to avoid colon cancer is a good thing as well. So I've seen papers there, and I've also seen work that says that it helps with osteoporosis, so that women that have osteoporosis, the body actually turns up some of the genes to try to make more spermidine because it needs it. So that's pretty preliminary, but I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, but it's an amazing molecule. I'm sure the pharmaceutical companies are working on spermidine analogs. They don't have to work any better, but if they're unique, then they can patent them. They can spend the $500 million to do phase one, phase two, phase three clinicals, they can get a new drug application and then they can charge you 150 or $200 a month for the rest of your life to take it. I always prefer, if I can, to find natural molecules that give the benefit that we've been consuming for hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of years that, are, that have been demonstrated to be healthy that's my first choice because when you make a pharmaceutical, sometimes you have unintended consequences from it. And so it may not, you know, it may give you the effect that you want, but you may get some negative effects as well. 
And we're seeing that whole process. Uh, as we speak, we're seeing that process going with the, some of the NAD supplements where there's the pharmaceutical companies are making a, a, a pharmaceutical component of NMN. So they're trying to knock out all the supplement companies. Mm -hmm. And it's, this is going to become, we're going to see this a lot more and more as, as they realize that this supplements actually have value and there's not just ridiculous voodoo science. But on to ergothionine. So yes. discuss what the benefits are, why people should be looking for it, eating their mushrooms, if they, if they can supplement it. Go so for it. Why should they ergo do that? Ergothionine is actually an amino acid. And you find it, I don't know if exclusively, but primarily in mushrooms. So you're thinking, okay, that's nice. You've never heard of it. You know, it's not part of my DNA. You know, what's the body use it for? So when you eat something that has ergothionine, the body has a transporter just for that amino acid. So it grabs all of it out of your gut. Unlike most drugs that are immediately metabolized in the liver, and then excreted um, by your body, the body holds on to all the ergothionine. And then here's how I picture ergothionine. It is a molecule that the body can use intelligently. So if you have a cell and the cell is undergoing oxidative attack, it can turn on the genes, not to make ergothionine, but to make the transporter. And so it, it makes that transporter and it puts it on the cell. The body is circulating the ergothionine in your blood. The cells that need it, the ones that are on fire, put it out. So in your garage, maybe if there's a fire in your fuse box, you want to put it out. But if there's a fire inside the cylinders that you need for the car to run, you don't want to go dumping water into the cylinders of your car. So it's selectively the cells can selectively bring it in to put it out. And what's interesting is it's also an incredible copper chelator. And you're thinking, well, what's the big deal about copper? Free copper in the body is like free gasoline in your garage. It's dangerous as hell. You need to keep copper inside a safety gas can. You need to keep it inside a protein called ceruloplasmin because that keeps it safe. And that's how you transport it through the body. And there was some work that came out of Europe and I reached out to one of the researchers and said, can you send me the full study? Because all of the abstract was online and she did. And I did a whole talk on this, but um, it turns out that the number one predictor in all these people that had mild cognitive impairment, would they progress to have Alzheimer's or not? And you think, well, you know, what's their, you know, do they have APOE4? Are they a 4-4 or a 3-4, you know, whatever. Do they have high cholesterol? You know, do they have all these other things that are known to be negative for Alzheimer's? And out of the list of nine or 10 things that they looked at, the number one thing was having significant levels of unbound copper. Now, copper is not evil. Without copper, you can't make collagen. Without copper, you can't make myelin sheaths, which is the insulation on your nerves. So you need copper. It's fundamental to life. Without copper, you can't absorb iron and you can't move iron along because copper is beautiful about being able to transfer electrons back and forth to things. But when you have free copper in your brain, your risk of Alzheimer's goes wild. So the way they do that is they look at the serum copper 
and then they look at the amount of ceruloplasmin in there, and they know the stoichiometry, meaning how much copper is inside the gas can and how much of it is free. And that was the number one factor that determined if people went from mild cognitive impairment to full-blown Alzheimer's. And that blew my mind because I had never heard anybody talking about it. And then if you look, the Japanese have done studies and they've shown, if you look at Japanese and you pick people that eat a lot of mushrooms and you pick people that eat much, many fewer mushrooms, the people that eat a lot of mushrooms get far less cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's. Guess what? Mushrooms are giving them a high level of ergothionine. The body puts it in the blood. If the cells in the brain are under attack, maybe because there's free copper there catalyzing reactions, the body, the cell can turn on the transporter and it can pull in the ergothionine and ergothionine chelates copper and it makes it catalytically inactive. You're like, okay, John, talk English. It means that it, it's inside the gas can. It can no longer do damage. Um, iron and copper cause problems by, because they are redox active. They transfer electrons reg, you know, right, uh, readily. Sorry, I can't speak. I'm fasting, by the way. <laughs> um, Brains work. You're on the ketones now. <laughs> yeah, I, gotta, I need more beta-hydroxybutyrate to kick in here. Um, but if a cell in your brain is under attack, and it can pull in some ergothionine, it can selectively chelate the copper there. Now they have tried to give people that have mild cognitive impairment copper chelators, but that's a dumb chelator. That chelates copper everywhere. And that's like something that's gonna get rid of all the gasoline. So now you don't have any gas for your car and the car doesn't run. It has to be intelligent. It has to be on a cell by cell basis where the cell can decide if it's under attack can turn on the transporter and pull the copper in. And so that's my medical hypothesis. I haven't submitted it. I've been pretty busy, but that copper is a key player in a significant fraction of Alzheimer's. And I want to just digress for one second because there's a key point, Neil. There are hundreds of people that are listening, that are looking for that one thing, that one magic bullet. You know, and they watch the Billy Crystal movie where he went out west and they're looking for that one thing. And I guess what I would say is, I think that's a mistake. The metaphor should be, you're building a race car. Is horsepower important? Yes. Is mitochondrial function important? Yes. Is it the whole story? No. You know, is chronic inflammation important? Yes. Is it the whole story? No. The biggest problem that we have is if you want to be a top scientist in this world, you pick a narrow area, you know, vitamin K2, or you pick a narrow area about autophagy or about spermidine, and you go 10 miles deep in that area. But you, and you tend to think that's the whole world because that's your area and you know it and you know it completely. You need to change the model in your mind that you're building a race car and that you have to optimize multiple systems. Occasionally, if you have a race car where the aerodynamics and the suspension and the braking and the handling are all really good, and you turn up the horsepower, you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. 
Or if you have a cup, if you make a soup and the soup has no salt and you go along and then you add a couple of teaspoons of salt, you're like, oh my God, salt is it. It's the answer. So the two models I'd say is your body is your recipe. If somebody else added salt to their recipe and it had a massive improvement, that's right. And that's right for their recipe. If you're exactly like them, it may be the case for you too, but it could have no effect or it may actually make you feel worse. So, so many people in the world figure out what worked for them, what were their weak links, and then something that made a big change to them, it's a magic bullet. And that's the problem with most of the books that are written in health is they tend to be on a single subject. I don't think it's the researcher. I think it's the publisher. The publisher says it's got to be just about gluten. It's got to just be about uric acid. It's got to just be about because people can't handle it. But change your viewpoint. And that is that your health, that Y is a function of 100 different X's. In your recipe, a couple of those are your weak links. When you fix those weak links, you'll get a huge effect. You'll think this is the best thing since sliced bread. So that's why measuring critical biomarkers, getting a look inside your specific biochemistry, knowing what your weak links are, and then targeting those first, and then going back, not just saying, you, you always wanna say, do I feel better? But you wanna go back, maybe you measured 80 biomarkers, you wanna go back and measure those three biomarkers again to see if what you're doing is working for you because you may not have the right bugs in your gut to do a conversion. So it doesn't work for you. You have to change course. Um, that's why I'm pretty strong on the supplements that I take because I measure 80 or 90 biomarkers every year. And I have my data. Now, this is where you're like a super nerd, but I have my data plotted since 2008. And every time I make a significant change to my supplements or my diet, I look at all these parameters and I can see because the body is so complicated. You may help three things, but you may hurt something else. So you, it's um, copper is not good or bad. Iron is not good or bad, but free iron in the brain will kill you. Free copper in the brain will kill you. Copper deficiency, you'll end up with anemia. You'll end up with your hands will shake because your, your nerves, the insulation comes off your nerves. So we got to stop making molecules good or bad. It's you have to optimize your recipe. And that means you need to know what it is, what's going on inside you. So you can make intelligent choices about what to go after. And then you got to measure it to see if it's working or not. Because sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And we don't know everything about everything. I guarantee you in 20 years, they're going to look back and say, oh my God, they were using you know, non-selective chemotherapy for this cancer. Oh my God, they were giving people things that just kill cells willy-nilly, hoping the cancer cells that are fastest growing would consume the most of it and die. They're going to look back at a lot of things that we do now and they're going to cringe. So, you know, we think we have the state of the art. In 20 years, we will laugh at today's state of the art. In 20 years, there'll be gene therapy and 3D organs and all these things that we think are futuristic. And now they're like, oh, what are we worried about that? We're just here. Here's your, here. Go to the 
Costco and get your 3D liver and you're good to go. Um, <laughs> things may change. We'll see. It's real, sci-fi may become reality. Um, but yeah, I think one point, you definitely get your biomarkers, definitely work either on your own or work with a, a doctor who or a health care provider who can tra- tell you what markers to be looking at, what is important. And it's not just the thing with the health biomarkers, what my number is for my thyroid or whatever thyroid marker I'm looking at may not be the same it is for Dr. John. It, it goes on what your symptoms are and it correlates with a couple other things as well. Your immune system, your, there's so many different pieces to this. We're not just cookie cutter. And like what again works for me is not going to work for Dr. John or my wife or somebody else. You want to work with somebody who has an individual plan. If somebody says, no, you're going to do these 22 supplements and do this and that, and you're going to be great run fast the other way. Um, that's my Especially opinion. Because they really believe it because they did it and it yeah. worked for them. They're like, oh my God, when we added eggs to this recipe, my cake came out so much better. So you got to do that. And yet in your recipe, it may not be a good ingredient. Although generally I think eggs are pretty healthy for most people. Um, but you have, that's why it's so critical that you tune it to your situation. I, I just think that's, I, I think that's huge, you know? Uh, yeah. No, the hours, the time has flown by here. We're winding up. So if you have one more tip for people, what would they, in terms of optimizing their health span, let, let me know what that would be. And then let everybody know where they can find you, learn all those, get more great information. Mm-hmm. If, I don't know if your programs are still open. I know you have, you, we're having a wait list. So tell everybody about where they can find you, learn all about sure. these great insights. Sure. Uh, thanks, Neil. Um, so there's a, ton of other things I could tell you about, you know, omega-3 versus omega-6 fats, or, you know, how do you improve glucose disposal or whatever. Um, One thing that's killing most Americans right now is excess fructose consumption. And you're like, wait a second, John, fructose, that's fruit sugar. That's got to be good for me. Fruit's good for me. And I think that's a huge problem right now There are two researchers that I have a lot of respect for that have done some great work here. Um, uh, One of them is Dr. Richard Johnson, who has done a tremendous amount of research in this space, primarily in animals, but kind of unraveling this whole fructose thing. And in a nutshell, fructose is primarily metabolized in your liver. And when that wave of fructose hits your liver, from the barbecue sauce or the sweetened iced tea or the low-fat yogurt, everything, all processed foods in general have a bunch of fructose in them because it's the cheapest way to sweeten things. And I have friends that are like, oh, John, I don't ever eat that. I just use table sugar. I'm like, okay, table sugar is a disaccharide. It's half glucose and half fructose. So yeah, high fructose corn syrup, generally 55% fructose, 45% glucose. That's a bad actor. Um, But table sugar is only 10% less bad. So that fructose from table sugar or that fructose from fruit or that fructose from barbecue sauce or ketchup or iced tea, it hits your liver. The liver, when it metabolizes it, um, it uses an enzyme called fructokinase. And it has to add a phosphate group to the fructose. And uh, I'm gonna grab, I, I have this from a, a talk I did a few weeks ago, but you know, here's my ATP molecule, you know, so. His own and ATP molecule. It starts, yeah, not to scale as they say, 
it starts to yank phosphates off the ATP because that it, you need a phosphate for every single fructose molecule. And what happens is in a short time, you can wipe out half the ATP in your liver, which is a nightmare. It's like if somebody emptied half your bank account and now you don't have the money to pay the mortgage. You don't have the money to mow the lawn. You just don't have the currency to do what you need to do to stay healthy. So that's step one, fructose knocks down. Now you have a bunch of ADP floating around in your cell now. What's gonna happen? The, the body needs more ATP. So some of the ADP is gonna steal a phosphate and it's to make ATP back. So you're gonna end up with a whole bunch of what's called AMP, adenosine monophosphate. And when you have a lot of that in the cell, remember this is your fully charged lithium battery or now it's a discharged lithium battery. When you have low phosphate, which you're gonna have because the fructose wiped out all the phosphate in your liver, the body turns on an enzyme to get rid of the AMP. And you, um, pardon my blunt words, you piss out all your lithium batteries. You, you metabolize this and you eliminate them. You urinate out what was your ATP, you know? And you know, that's the first thing, which is a nightmare. Um, and you've also wiped out the ATP in the liver. That's a bad thing. But when you metabolize this, what do you make? The me metabolic product is uric acid. And then uric acid goes out and tells your body, wow, it's the fall. And we have to get ready before we hibernate. We're not going to have any food this winter. And so it says, turn down energy use, turn down fat burning, you know, turn up um, fat production in the liver. All that fructose gets converted to fat and you end up with fatty liver disease. It causes your triglycerides to skyrocket. The uric acid raises your blood pressure and some of that fat that the liver has to export into your blood ends up around your midsection. So you no longer have abs, you have a layer of visceral fat around your organs in your midsection. So I know from, um, for young people, it's like, oh my God, that's gonna ruin my Instagram pictures. But, can't mess but, with in, Instagram. but in reality, that visceral fat is the most dangerous fat because that's where you produce all these inflammatory cytokines. You know, the IL-6, all these other things that can cause you a nightmare if you ever get sick. So I think that excess fructose consumption above 25 grams a day is killing Americans. And it's not just me. I mean, Dr. Dr. Johnson has shown this. He has a book that's called um, Nature Wants You to Be Fat. Great book, get it on Audible. Um, Dr. David Perlmutter wrote a mm -hmm. book called Drop Acid, which is not a guide to Grateful Dead concerts. It is actually, you know, how do you drop your uric acid levels? Another great book. I have tremendous respect for Dr. Perlmutter. In fact, had a chance to do uh, a couple clubhouses with him, um, you know, back in the day. Um, so I think that excess fructose and excess omega-6 fats are killing people. And I wish every 
every bag of processed food would have to say on it how many grams of fructose and how many grams of omega-6 fat is present in this package. And then people could say, I'm not eating that. I was telling, when I gave the talk, I said, you know, I go to a Super Bowl party and I'm like, I'm scanning all the food. And I'm like, wow, there's 40 things here. I'm going to eat chicken wings because those are the least adulterated. <laughs> I don't want to get overloaded with fructose and I don't want to get overloaded with omega-6 fats. So that would be the one I would leave it on is you don't want non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. You don't want high triglycerides. You don't want high blood pressure. You don't want fat around your middle and fructose is driving all those things. It's never one thing. And a low level of fructose, the liver uses it. It makes some glycogen. Everybody's good. It's when you, I, pick, I tell people, you have a pot on the stove. It can handle 25 grams of fructose. You fill it up, it boils down, everything's good. When you put in 50 grams, 25 grams of that sugar goes out and spills across the top of your stove and starts burning and smoking and spilling into your kitchen and onto the floor and making nasty smells and burnt garbage all over your stove. When you exceed your body's ability to deal with fructose, then you um, create metabolic nightmares. And I want to, uh, again, acknowledge Dr. Richard Johnson and Dr. Perlmutter. They do a beautiful job articulating it. They'll show you 100 studies or 200 studies but I want to make you aware of the research from Dr. Johnson and the book from both, both of these folks, because that is something that's killing us right now. And I know so many people, they're like, I'm afraid of fat. I eat low fat, low fat, low fat. Well, there's only protein, fat, and carbohydrate. That's it. So when you go low fat, normally those products are high carbohydrate and oftentimes high fructose. So you think you're doing something that's good, but in reality, it's, it's really destroying your metabolism. It's just so processed foods, no matter what it is, is not good for your pure, clean, organic food is, is the way to go. I, yeah, I told the uric acid, I think has now become jumped up and become one of those important biomarkers to check. Um, yeah. So where can people find you? Are you, are you on social media much? Is it mostly through the website? Where can people check out the information that you provide? Yeah, um, I have a website that outlines my program. It's just my name, johnsaudery.com. And I have a program where I teach people all the health moves that I'm doing. Um, I try to give them enough of the science like we did today where you get it, where you understand. Because for me, I have a hard time just saying, don't eat this, especially if it tastes good. But once I know how it works and once I know how it ravages my metabolism, then I'm like, wow, I don't care how good they make that poison taste. It's easy for me to pass on it. Um, and so, you know, I try to teach people, here's why it's, I think it's important. That's why I'm paying attention to it. And then I say, here's what I'm doing that is easy and generally relatively low cost. Um, and then here are the watchouts. Um, and here are the biomarkers that you might want to look at to see if this approach is working for you or not. The, the biggest, another big problem in the world, Neil, is that there's about a 20-year gap 
between the clinical discovery, the discovery in terms of the research, and then when it actually becomes common practice um, in medicine. And you know that because you operate in, you look at the research and you're sharing things with people now that maybe it's going to be 15 years before they will hear about it from someone else. Hmm. So you're, it, and the reason for that, it's not evil. It's just that science happens. Let's say in 1990, a bunch of science happens. And then in 1994, people start writing review articles on it. And then in 1998, they revise a medical textbook. And then they say, okay, we're going to start bringing in some of these things about fructose and uric acid and NRF2 and so on. Um, and then eventually, a couple of years later, a new medical textbook comes out. And then the person goes to medical school and they're there for four years. And then they, you know, then they have to do their rounds and so on. So there's this 20 year lag between when the discovery happens and when it becomes common in clinical practice for biomarkers and in terms of the knowledge. And so I'm trying to live in that, in that gap and say, let me find the gems from the scientific literature. Let me understand them. Let me vet them. Let me make sure that they are real. And then how can I take that knowledge and put it to work so that, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, uh, you know, I'm 60, 63, I'll be 64 next year. But, you know, I want to, when I get up, I want to be able to, you know, I want, I want to, I don't want to have any fat on my midsection. I want my, I want to be solid. I want to be able to go on, the, on a backpacking trip, you know, with people that are 20, 30 and 40 and go through the North Carolina mountains. And I want to be one of the two or three people that doesn't get tired, that doesn't have any issue hiking up a mountain with 38 or 40 pounds on my back. Um, I refuse to surrender to aging normally. And I want to share with, with, you know, with you guys what I'm doing. Um, so uh, you, you can find me at, at johnsaudery.com. So I am, both of my parents um, are no longer here. And uh, my mother was a three-time cancer survivor who um, uh, didn't survive her last bout with cancer, but she made it to, you know, to 82 which I was very thankful of and grateful for. My father, um, I coached him the whole time. He made it to age 90 and he lived at home and he was sharp until the end. Um, but he had chronic disease for the last 30 years of his life. He had Parkinson's, <coughs> Parkinson's disease. He had type two diabetes. He had extra weight. Um, I wish I could have saved both of them. Uh, you know, <laughs> You know, they're both gone, but I can help save you guys. I can help you spot the iceberg years before you hit it and then make those slight metabolic course changes so you never hit it. Because once you have a seven centimeter tumor on your lung, once you have a tumor in your colon or in your prostate or in your breast, you know, the, I'm glad we have treatment options. But I know from my mother's experience that the treatment options are oftentimes brutal. You know, she had lymphedema for the, you know, for the last uh, you know, 25 years of her life because they had to take out her lymph nodes by surgery. She had, she had radiation multiple times. She had massive side effects from the radiation. 
she went through multiple rounds of chemo and she had massive side effects from the chemo. So the trick with cancer is to prevent it as much as humanly possible. And yet that's not the focus in the world right now. Um, I wanna mention for the male viewers that gamma tocopherol, gamma tocopherol or mixed natural tocopherols um, seems to have be highly protective against prostate cancer. There was work done at Johns Hopkins, I wanna say around 2001, and the guys in the top fifth versus the bottom fifth, they didn't see a 50% reduction in prostate cancer. The people in the top fifth versus the bottom fifth had a five-fold reduction in prostate cancer over the next 10 years. And we won't get into the mechanistic reasons and like that, but a lot of people, when they supplement with vitamin E, they take alpha tocopherol, which is one of eight vitamin E molecules. And it turns out that the gamma and the delta are the ones that have this beneficial anti-cancer effect. And so if you take too much of alpha tocopherol, the body will turn on the genes in the cell to get rid of all the tocopherols. And the US government did a study, um, I wanna say around 2011, I have to go back and look, uh, maybe earlier than that. No, actually, I think it finished in 2011. Um, but they gave people 400 international units of racemic alpha tocopherol, so D comma L. And they said, okay, what's this gonna do? Is this gonna prevent prostate cancer? Not only did it not prevent prostate cancer, but that synthetic mixture of the DNL form of alpha tocopherol actually increased prostate cancer by 22%, and it was statistically significant. And when I look at their study in table number one, you can see six months into the study, and this was a 10-year study, they had cut the gamma tocopherol level of all the patients in half by loading them up with synthetic alpha tocopherol. The body turned on the genes to get rid of it and got rid of the good gamma tocopherol and likely the delta, but they didn't measure it. And they actually ended up with more prostate cancer. So I call racemic alpha tocopherol the rat. And I try to teach people, how do you avoid the rat? And many processed foods, the formulators are not biochemists. They don't know any better. And when pure mixed natural tocopherols cost this much and racemic alpha, alpha tocopherol costs this much, which one do you think they're going to use in their almond milk or their coconut milk or their other products? So you don't want to take racemic alpha tocopherol, the D comma L form. So David comma Larry, um, you don't want to take it as a supplement and you don't want to take it in your, in any manufactured food that you get because it not only doesn't help you, it actually um, has negative health things. So I, I have a, a video on YouTube called the supplement mistake that millions of people make every day um, that uh, increases the risk of cancer. And you know, it, it's free. And I also have a, uh, another video that I just did a Facebook Live and I pushed it up on YouTube. And it's now been watched like 1.4 million minutes. And it's, uh, it's how to avoid calcifying your arteries. And it's all about vitamin K2, 
which Neil, I know you're a fan of, I am too. If you end up calcifying your arteries, your risk of dying from heart disease goes up massively. The elasticity of the, of the arterial wall, wall goes down. It's a nightmare. And most Americans don't get enough K2. And it's so new that it's in, you know, only, it's in a, only a tiny fraction of supplements, but it's a ton of it is in natto. Number one food source in the world for vitamin K2 is natto. So okay. about the food, um, great info. I totally love vitamin K2. Give it to a lot of my heart patients and preventative patients. Thanks, Dr. John, for hopping on. Um, uh, all the information that Dr. John uh, presented will be in the show notes. We'll put a link to his website so you can check him out and check out his YouTube. Um, and stay tuned for another episode of Life Optimized coming soon. <laughs>